This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Horror at Martin's Beach by Sonia Green and H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Martin Rato for Lagamus. It runs 18 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This Lagamus recording may be distributed and adapted freely for any purpose. The Horror at Martin's Beach by Howard Phillips Lovecraft Read by Martin Rato I have never heard an even approximately adequate explanation of the horror at Martin's Beach. Despite the large number of witnesses, no two accounts agree, and the testimony taken by local authorities contains the most amazing discrepancies. Perhaps this haziness is natural in view of the unheard-of character of the horror itself, the almost paralytic terror of all who saw it, and the efforts made by the fashionable Wavecrest Inn to hush it up after the publicity created by Professor Ahan's article, Our Hypnotic Powers Confined to Recognized Humanity? Against all these obstacles, I am striving to present a coherent version, for I beheld the hideous occurrence and believe it should be known in view of the appalling possibilities it suggests. Martin's Beach is once more popular as a watering place, but I shudder when I think of it. Indeed, I cannot look at the ocean at all now without shuddering. Fate is not always without a sense of drama and climax, hence the terrible happening of August 8, 1922, swiftly followed a period of minor and agreeably wonder-fraught excitement at Martin's Beach, on May 17th, the crew of the fishing smack Alma of Gloucester, under Captain James P. Orne, killed after a battle of nearly 40 hours a marine monster whose size and aspect produced the greatest possible stir in scientific circles and caused certain Boston naturalists to take every precaution for its taxidermic preservation. The object was some 50 feet in length, of roughly cylindrical shape, and about ten feet in diameter. It was unmistakably a gilled fish in its major affiliations, but with certain curious modifications such as rudimentary forelegs and six-toed feet in place of pectoral fins, which prompted the widest speculation. Its extraordinary mouth, its thick and scaly hide, and its single deep-set eye were wonders scarcely less remarkable than its colossal dimensions. And when the naturalists pronounced it an infant organism which could not have been hatched more than a few days, public interest mounted to extraordinary heights. Captain Orne, with typical Yankee shrewdness, obtained a vessel large enough to hold the object in its hull and arranged for the exhibition of his prize. With judicious carpentry, he prepared what amounted to an excellent marine museum, and, sailing south to the wealthy resort district of Martin's Beach, anchored at the Hotel Wharf and reaped a harvest of admission fees. 
the intrinsic marvelousness of the object and the importance which it clearly bore in the minds of many scientific visitors from near and far combined to make it the season's sensation that it was absolutely unique unique to a scientifically revolutionary degree was well understood the naturalists had shown plainly that it radically differed from the similarly immense fish caught off the florida coast that while it was obviously an inhabitant of almost incredible depths perhaps thousands of feet its brain and principal organs indicated a development startlingly vast and out of all proportion to anything hitherto associated with the fish tribe on the morning of july twentieth the sensation was increased by the loss of the vessel and its strange treasure in the storm of the preceding night it had broken from its moorings and vanished forever from the sight of man, carrying with it the guard who had slept aboard despite the threatening weather. Captain Orne, backed by extensive scientific interests and aided by large numbers of fishing boats from Gloucester, made a thorough and exhaustive searching cruise, but with no result other than the prompting of interest and conversation. By August 7th, hope was abandoned, and Captain Orne had returned to the Wavecrest Inn to wind up his business affairs at Martin's Beach and confer with certain of the scientific men who remained there. The horror came on August 8th. It was in the twilight when gray seabirds hovered low near the shore and a rising moon began to make a glittering path across the waters. The scene is important to remember, for every impression counts. On the beach were several strollers and a few late bathers, stragglers from the distant cottage colony that rose modestly on a green hill to the north, or from the adjacent cliff perched in, whose imposing towers proclaimed its allegiance to wealth and grandeur. Well within viewing distance was another set of spectators, the loungers on the inn's high-ceilinged and lantern-lighted veranda, who appeared to be enjoying the dance music from the sumptuous ballroom inside. These spectators, who included Captain Orne and his group of scientific confreres, joined the beach group before the horror progressed far, as did many more from the inn. Certainly there was no lack of witnesses, confused though their stories be with fear and doubt of what they saw. There is no exact record of the time the thing began, although a majority say that the fairly round moon was about a foot above the low-lying vapors of the horizon. They mentioned the moon because what they saw seemed subtly connected with it, a sort of stealthy, deliberate, menacing ripple which rolled in from the far skyline along the shimmering lane of reflected moonbeams, yet which seemed to subside before it reached the shore. Many did not notice this ripple until reminded by later events, but it seems to have been very marked, differing in height and motion from the normal waves around it. Some called it cunning and calculating, and as it died away craftily by the black reefs afar out, there suddenly came belching up out of the glitter-streaked brine a cry of death, a scream of anguish and despair that moved pity even while it mocked it. 
first to respond to the cry were the two lifeguards then on duty, sturdy fellows in white bathing attire, with their calling proclaimed in large red letters across their chests. Accustomed as they were to rescue work, and to the screams of the drowning, they could find nothing familiar in the unearthly ululation, yet with a trained sense of duty they ignored the strangeness and proceeded to follow their usual course. Hastily seizing an air cushion, which with its attached coil of rope lay always at hand, one of them ran swiftly along the shore to the scene of the gathering crowd, whence, after whirling it about to gain momentum, he flung the hollow disk far out in the direction from which the sound had come. As the cushion disappeared in the waves, the crowd curiously awaited a sight of the hapless being whose distress had been so great, eager to see the rescue made by the massive rope. But that rescue was soon acknowledged to be no swift and easy matter, for, pull as they might on the rope, the two muscular guards could not move the object at the other end. Instead, they found that object pulling with equal or even greater force in the very opposite direction, till in a few seconds they were dragged off their feet and into the water by the strange power which had seized on the preferred life-preserver. One of them, recovering himself, called immediately for help from the crowd on the shore, to whom he flung the remaining coil of rope, and in a moment the guards were seconded by all the hardier men, among whom Captain Orne was foremost. More than a dozen strong hands were now tugging desperately at the stout line, yet wholly without avail. Hard as they tugged, the strange force at the other end tugged harder, and since neither side relaxed for an instant, the rope became rigid as steel with the enormous strain. The struggling participants, as well as the spectators, were by this time consumed with curiosity as to the nature of the force in the sea. The idea of a drowning man had long been dismissed, and hints of whales, submarines, monsters, and demons now passed freely around. Where humanity had first let the rescuers, wonder kept them at their task, and they hauled with the grim determination to uncover the mystery. It being decided at last that a whale must have swallowed the air cushion, Captain Orne, as a natural leader, shouted to those on shore that a boat must be obtained in order to approach, harpoon, and land the unseen leviathan. Several men at once prepared to scatter in quest of a suitable craft, while others came to supplant the captain at the straining rope, since his place was logically with whatever boat party might be formed. His own idea of the situation was very broad, and by no means limited to whales, since he had to do with the monster so much stranger. He wondered what might be the acts and manifestations of an adult of the species of which the fifty-foot creature had been the merest infant. And now there developed with appalling suddenness the crucial fact which changed the entire scene from one of wonder to one of horror, and dazed with fright the assembled band of toilers and onlookers. Captain Orne, turning to leave his post at the rope, 
found his hands held in their place with unaccountable strength, and in a moment he realized that he was unable to let go of the rope. His plight was instantly divined, and as each companion tested his own situation, the same condition was encountered. The fact could not be denied. Every struggler was irresistibly held in some mysterious bondage of the hempen line, which was slowly, hideously, and relentlessly pulling them out to sea. Speechless horror ensued, a horror in which the spectators were petrified to utter inaction and mental chaos. Their complete demoralization is reflected in the conflicting accounts they give, and the sheepish excuses they offer for their seemingly callous inertia. I was one of them. And no. Even the strugglers, after a few frantic screams and futile groans, succumbed to the paralyzing influence and kept silent and fatalistic in the face of unknown powers. There they stood in the pallid moonlight, blindly pulling against a spectral doom and swaying monotonously backward and forward as the water rose first to their knees, then to their hips. The moon went partly under a cloud, and in the half-light the line of swaying men resembled some sinister and gigantic centipede, writhing in the clutch of a terrible, creeping death. Harder and harder grew the rope, as the tug in both directions increased, and the hands swelled with the undisturbed soaking of the rising waves. Slowly the tide advanced, till the sand so lately peopled by laughing children and whispering lovers were now swallowed by the inexorable flow. The herd of panic-stricken watchers surged blindly backward as the water crept above their feet, while the frightful line of strugglers swayed hideously on, half-submerged, and now at a substantial distance from their audience. Silence was complete. The crowd, having gained a huddling place beyond the reach of the tide, stared a mute fascination, without offering a word of advice or encouragement or attempting any kind of assistance. There was in the air a nightmare fear of impending evils such as the world had never before known. Minutes seemed lengthened into hours, and still that human snake of swaying torsos was seen above the fast-rising tide. Rhythmically it undulated, slowly, horribly, with the seal of doom upon it. Thicker clouds now passed over the ascending moon, and the glittering path on the waters faded nearly out. Very dimly writhed the serpentine line of nodding heads, with now and then the livid face of a backward-glancing victim gleaming pale in the darkness. Faster and faster gathered the clouds, till at length their angry rifts shot down sharp tongues of febrile flame. Thunders rolled softly at first, yet soon increasing to a deafening, maddening intensity. Then came a culminating crash, a shock whose reverberations seemed to shake land and sea alike and on its heels a cloudburst whose drenching violence overpowered the darkened world as if the heavens themselves had opened to pour forth a vindictive torrent. 
the spectators instinctively acting despite the absence of conscious and coherent thought, now retreated up the cliff steps to the hotel veranda. Rumors had reached the guests inside so that the refugees found a state of terror nearly equal to their own. I think a few frightened words were uttered, but cannot be sure. Some who were staying at the inn retired in terror to their rooms, while others remained to watch the fast-sinking victims as the line of bobbing heads showed above the mounting waves in the fitful lightning flashes. I recall thinking of those heads and the bulging eyes they must contain, eyes that might well reflect all the fright, panic, and delirium of a malignant universe, all the sorrow, sin, and misery, blasted hopes and unfulfilled desires, fear, loathing, and anguish of the ages since time's beginning, eyes alight with all the soul-racking pain of eternally blazing infernos. And as I gazed out beyond the heads, my fancy conjured up still another eye, a single eye, equally alight, yet with a purpose so revolting to my brain that the vision soon passed. Held in the clutches of an unknown vice, the line of the damned dragged on, their silent screams and unuttered prayers known only to the demons of the black waves and the night wind. There now burst from the infuriate sky such a mad cataclysm of satanic sound that even the former crash seemed dwarfed. Amidst the blinding glare of descending fire, the voice of heaven resounded with the blasphemies of hell, and the mingled agony of all the lost reverberated in one apocalyptic planet-rending peal of cyclopean din. It was the end of the storm, for with uncanny suddenness the rain ceased, and the moon once more cast her pallid beams on a strangely quieted sea. There was no line of bobbing heads now. The waters were calm and deserted, and broken only by the fading ripples of what seemed to be a whirlpool far out in the path of the moonlight whence the strange cry had first come. But as I looked along that treacherous lane of silvery sheen, with fancy fevered and senses overwrought, there trickled upon my ears from some abysmal sunken waste the faint and sinister echoes of a laugh. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Marissa. And I'm Wayne. Hello, I'm Terrence. And we're going to talk about The Horror at Martin's Beach by H.P. Lovecraft and Sonia Green. Sonia H. Green. Um, or The Invisible Monster by Sonia H. Green. This was first published in Weird Tales, November 1923. Um, very, very early issue of Weird Tales. Uh, before they were married... Uh, but it was published while they were married, I think. It was written before and then published while. Oh, November 23? Maybe not. Maybe that was uh, 24. They got married. Yeah. Interesting. So this is their pre-marriage uh, uh, marriage contract? <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a very adorable courtship story, I think. It is. Uh, so they're like, let's get together and write a so, horror. So the sea is New York. 
<laughs> and Lovecraft is grab grabbed onto this rope and get drugged to New York. Is that <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Um uh I don't feel it as super super duper y Lovecraft written, but there are places here and there. I still think it's interesting though. It's got some interesting stuff and and mm-hmm. the fact that uh he he read it uh, he he helped her form the idea and then uh it's got some interesting aspects it's an interesting story i don't think it's a great great story but it's very interesting yeah it's got, it's definitely got lovecraft uh, components and you know it's got the lovecraft skeleton for a story there uh it's a uh little softer than his usual horror mm. you know mm. the a little less horrible than some of its details. Um, but uh, one thing I thought was interesting, too, it was originally titled, I think, if my research is correct, uh, The Horror at Martin's Beach. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, I think he came 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 to it and, uh, you know, put his imprimatur on it, uh, did, did a little work on it. They ended up, when it was published, calling it The Invisible Monster, which I thought was... Uh, uh, much less apt title. It's you know. very weird because uh, I kept, I kept, well, I kept looking for the invisible monster. And I don't think <laughs> there is an invisible you, monster in it. You never, you never find invisible things, Jesse. And, <laughs> and yet, I recall, I recall uh, in, I, I once printed it out. I, I don't have it handy, but it was uh, Lovecraft's commonplace book. You know, all the. Entries for mm-hmm. story ideas, and there was, and there is a story, um, in it in which uh, it's just a story, you know, story idea. Uh, invisible monster only seen in moonlight. Ah, right. okay. Um, and I, I've even done my own little like illustration for that. Uh, but it, it it does have that sense that there's something there, obviously unseen in the water, but. Uh, I, I keep like, why isn't the moon in the title? If you're going to change the title, because the mm. moon plays a huge role in this as it does in many, many other stories. Um, I mean, Lovecraft is uniquely obsessed with the moon in a certain sense. If you, if you look at, you know, the moon bog is a great example, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, also a very similar sort of, um, pulling to the moon. There's, uh, cats that go to the moon, right? <laughs> in, uh, um, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, right? And uh, I think there, this might this might be only in my head rather than uh, on the list of of Lovecraft's uh, commonplace book story ideas. But um, the moon is a giant egg <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's okay. about to hatch, right? <laughs> Which is a great idea, uh, and uh, I'm sure somebody else has thought of it before. But yeah, it's just been up there incubating 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 and now it's ready to crack open (laughs) what's gonna happen to the earth yo (laughs) we're the we're the food source for that baby egg Um, but there's definitely something going on with the idea i mean here's the reason not to call it the horror at martin's beach i'll just read the first paragraph i have never heard an approximately adequate explanation of the horror at Martin's Beach. Because 
you don't want to repeat <laughs> the title in the first sentence. That's a I good know, reason, it, that, right? That's a stylistic thing. I've seen it done. You know, it's like I a know. little re- re- reiteration thing, you know. But the... Yeah, I was looking also for the invisible monster, too, because I, I figured, OK, now, wait a minute. They first they described the first one, which ended up being the not uh, invisible. The, the infant, right? The baby. The baby. And then uh, when the when the mother showed up, uh, you know, they saw the ripples in the water and and all that business. And it it grabbed the the tow line or the uh, uh, or a rescue line, whatever it was. And. Mm-hmm. You know, th- things ensued from there, but, uh, they did describe that, you know, they said that that one had a single eye also. So, uh, technically that wasn't invisible. So I was looking like, okay, is there something between the lines here? Is there another invisible, mm-hmm. some, something that, uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't find it. So, well, but when they described the eye, he sort of, He's not even sure if he really saw that. Like, it sounds like it's almost like a vision in his head. Like, he says something. Uh, My fancy says, conjured up. Yeah, mm-hmm. still another eye. So it's almost like he gets a glimpse of it, but he's not, you know, no one's really sure what they saw. So it's like he, she, whoever's narrating this, mm-hmm. um, isn't, yeah, like, it's still kind of invisible. Kind yeah, of the I, moon I, I, the eye. The eye is the moon, or yes. it wasn't the moon. Yeah, that's why that's why it's so tied to it, right? So, and 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 I I like everybody's just assuming that it's the mom, right? Where does it say that in the story? I, yeah. I didn't assume it was the mom. Okay, well Wayne was saying it was the mom, and Marissa was probably saying it was the mom. More importantly, Jesse's thinking it's the mom, but where does it say it in the story? Well, yeah, I I noted that it never actually said it, but I also as soon as I thought about the baby <laughs> exactly. thing being killed and then something coming in like in deep grief, I was like, all right, that's mom. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it could be that. It, it makes me think of um, one part of Shadows, uh, the um, Conan story that we read, um, Shadows in the Moonlight, I, where the bad the bad guys kill uh, a, a, a demi, demigod mm-hmm. and the god uh, um, wow. uh, wow. arrives and petrifies them and it mm-hmm. seems to be the father there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So you didn't did, – did you, did you pre-read anything about this so that you had that idea primed into you? Or no. is it just that word that, you know, the – in? So, one of the things I, I was reading this with a student, I was like, how do they know it's a baby? <laughs> they say it's an infant. It was newborn. <laughs> I mean, what is shell stuff, egg, eggshell on the outside, the little, little yolk stick sticking to the feathers? Or, I mean, come on. How do you know something's had, a it baby? Still had its, it might have still had its baby teeth, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're labeled <laughs> baby teeth. I think it's because of the layering that it's, it's, it's cosmic. But it's big for us, but it's pretty small for a cosmic being. So it seems like a baby. But I thought more maybe demi demi god or demi cosmic entity. It had that new baby smell. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got, if you've got oh, a, the smell. <laughs> if you've got a, uh, a a a single representative of a species, I don't think you can say it's a baby version of that, right? Uh, I just don't think that's very scientific. Um, and 
and that got me to thinking uh, really interesting stuff. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but it's right in the first paragraph. I'm going to finish reading that first paragraph. Despite the large number of witnesses, no two accounts agree, and the testimony taken by local authorities contains the most amazing discrepancies. So we're supposed to be looking for these discrepancies. We're primed for it, right? And then what happens um, is we're told about Cap- Captain Orn. Uh, is he's he is one of those residents? Uh, that family is one of the residents of Innsmouth, I think. Right? Isn't Captain Orn the guy who went off to South America? Oh uh, no, uh, not South America. Uh, South Pacific and made a deal with the deep ones. Mm. Pretty yeah. sure. Pretty sure that's the same family name. Um, in any case, he's got this uh, a fishing smack called the Alma out of Gloucester, which is apparently a real place. And um, he he goes fishing and he catches after 40 hours. 40 is a very biblical number. If Eric was here, he could probably explain it much better than I. But basically, 40 turns up uh, whenever they want to say a large amount of time or something amazing big. You know, it rained for 40 nights, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and then, uh, what's he do immediately? He gets it taxidermied, right? <laughs> gets it taxidermied, buys a boat, and then his plan is to go from, from, uh, seaside resort to seaside resort, charging people admission to see the, the monster's beast, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> he turns, turns, turns into P.T. Barnum. Exactly. And all of those displays that, P.T. Barnum's putting on, yeah, there's a fat man and there's a lady with lots of tattoos and a bearded lady and stuff like that. But there's also the fake shit, right? Like that they say, look, this is a mermaid and it's just like a seal that's been grafted onto a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Grafted onto a baby? Yeah, you know, like, and it's in a jar, you know, so it's a flipper kid or whatever. And they're they're not what they purport to be. Uh, It wasn't that long ago I I found... uh, uh, I was reading one of those uh, horror comics from the 70s, DC and Marvel, but mostly DC, like Unexpected and House of Mystery, that sort of thing. And they used to have a requirement uh, in the U.S. mail to have a page of text or uh, two pages of text so that uh, they could get um, mailed as magazines, right? Otherwise, they couldn't get the discount. So... You would find uh-huh. in these old comics, there was a page of like text. And uh, as a kid, I'm like, what the fuck? Could I? I don't want to read this shit. <laughs> I want comics. God damn it. Why do you give me this shit? <laughs> well, um, eventually they disposed with that uh, requirement. But when they did have it, they had to put something in there. It's a horror comic. So they would just like get somebody to write something that'll fill the space. Right. Uh, but sometimes like in, uh, I think maybe it was a, uh, uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not or some, or one of those, you know, true ghost tales or whatever. They had a story of a, of a guy who was driving around Minnesota sort of area, you know, northern, mid, Midwest, United States. And, uh, he was driving around in a van and he had like, uh, basically, uh, Bigfoot <laughs> that he was displaying. Um, and he took it from town to town and people would come out and pay money to look at it. Right. And I'm like, that's, that sounds like bullshit to me. I looked it up. It was true. <laughs> like they, they, this thing existed. There are photographs of it. And basically, uh, when he had to cross 
like state lines or something. He got pulled over and they inspected it and he basically said, yeah, it's a scam, but whatever, you know, like I'm making money here. So leave me alone. Um, and, uh, was it alive or was it, taxidermied? it was dead. It was taxidermied, right? It was, oh, it was okay. a, it was a, uh, basically a monkey suit with some modifications, right? You know, oh, cool. cost, uh, gorilla costume or whatever with modification. It, was, it wasn't even a corpse, right? So uh, I, when I started reading it like that, um, the fact that he's got this taxidermical preservation going on and he buys a boat that's specifically big enough to house it, right? Um, I was, I was a bit skeptical, but I just want to read the next paragraph after, after the taxidermial, taxidermical preservation. Listen to this. The object was some 50 feet in length, a roughly cylindrical shape and about 10 feet in diameter. It was unmistakably a gilled fish in its major afflictions. Affiliations. <laughs> well, I've got, oh, geez, I just did a, uh, you're right. I, wow, I said afflictions, but it's not, it's affiliations. Geez, you know what? There you go. <laughs> That's exactly what I was talking about. A bit of dyslexia. Uh, but with certain curious modifications, such as rudimentary forelegs and six-toed feet in place of pectoral fins. So I did prime myself for that afflictions, didn't I? But modifications, who's doing the modifying, right? Um, and then uh, later on, it talks about how uh, it, Captain Orrin, with typical Yankee shrewdness, right? And those Yankee traders got a bad reputation for basically selling hokum, right? <laughs> um, bullshit. And then at the end of, uh, the what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh paragraph, it has this hilarious line that sounds like written by Lovecraft. Um, I'll just read it here. The naturalist had shown plainly that it, it radically differed from the similarly immense fish caught off the for- Florida coast. So uh, that makes me think that there's a, a story, was a story in the news in the early twenties about a giant fish being caught off the Florida coast, Mm -hmm. right? That while it was obviously an inhabitant of an almost incredible depth, perhaps thousands of feet, its brain and principal organs indicated a development startlingly vast and out of all proportion to anything hitherto associated with the fish tribe. (laughs) (laughs) You know that tribe. You know that tribe. (laughs) It just makes you think differently about fish, right? Um, so well, it makes me, me think of, you know, John Lilly, who, who did experiments with communicating with dolphins. Mm-hmm. And his theory was that the ordinary idea that um, intelligence is in terms of the ratio of the brain to the body was wrong. Yeah. Because in that uh, idea, a, a whale or a dolphin wouldn't be all that intelligent because I've got a big brain but a big body. And his theory was that it's just the pure size of the brain, that it's just pure computing power, no matter mm-hmm. how big or small the body is. So mm-hmm. that's all building up this idea that it is intelligent, but in a uh, radically different way to our intelligence. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, I, I I was thinking, you know, everything about this is entirely possible except for the one eye, right? So Cyclops, <laughs> Cyclops, uh, the, the monster from mythology is not a tribe, right? Bilateral. Well, they, symmet- are, they are a, a group of brothers, um, sons of Poseidon. Right. But in our, in our world, right? They are not a, 
there there isn't a kind of species that has like there aren't there's radial symmetry and there's bilateral symmetry and there ain't nothing that has just like when we say I have a nose technically that is correct because <laughs> we count noses <laughs> as one thing but they got two holes in them right um when you find like a, a you go on the internet and you search for uh, I don't know, Cyclops kitten or something, right? You'll find that every <laughs> once in a while there is a baby, yeah, that is born with uh, one eye instead of two, right? But that's not normal. That's uh, that's a growth problem, right? Um, well, that's why it's a half god. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 I, I keep tying. I, I think I think I think is out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you can use to excuse him for that is, um, you know, the his, his wife the wrote ocean, that part, right? <laughs> depth, the, the depths of the ocean being unexplored can harbor, uh, you know, life forms that, uh, that we've never seen. And, you know, totally possible that, uh, way out in thousands and thousands and thousands of feet deep, the you know there's a species that lives that has one eye you know mm. uh, for sure yeah I, I, we're still I've, finding I've weird some, stuff yeah I've, I've seen I've seen some crazy stuff that, that has come out of the ocean you know uh, half of them you see on the internet are like oh come on you know it's obviously a Photoshop thing the other half are like holy crap is that a real thing you know the stuff with the the, the ones with bioluminescence and mm. all that weird stuff going on it's like it, it definitely otherworldly, and I've I've always thought that uh, uh, that Lovecraft, uh, you know, got a lot a lot of his uh, tentacled monster ideas, um, in, you know, from the uh, from the depths of the sea. You know, he had a fascination with that, and there's you know a horror for and fascination, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, symmetry you know, is for weaklings, new. <laughs> Well, new biology, new one. No, but even in uh, what the uh, one seventy nine Antarctica, they've got radial symmetry, right? Like, uh, yeah. Okay, so here's They're the thing. To compared, I'm sure Cthulhu is not symmetric. The single eye makes me think that the, that that it's a fake, and that these quote unquote scientific men are basically just uh, people who work for Orn, right? But that doesn't make any sense if the actual events follow after this because as i'm reading i'm like well i'm looking for the discrepancies and like well there's one and you know he's a yankee he's a yankee who's gonna make some money off of this thing well that's not impossible right um but just the number of you know the number of um people who did that and they ended up being fake it's like almost all of them right <laughs> almost mm-hmm. all of them so but there not are not this time uh, but not this time right um and that's evidenced by the fact that all these people get killed by presumably revenge mom mm-hmm. right but re- and, and that uh, this brings me to the um, first half of the movie i watched last night which is um the Beast, uh, a TV movie starring William Peterson um, and a bunch of other 80s, 90s actors um, that's based on a Peter Benchley novel called the, uh, just called Beast, um, which is basically it's a retelling of um, uh, Jaws, but with a giant squid instead of uh, 
uh, shark. And it actually has the mom child dynamic, right? There's a baby squid. <laughs> and they kill the baby squid and now the mom's out for revenge. Thing is, is, uh, squids, you know, the way they reproduce is very similar to octopi. And there's no mothering instinct there at all, right? <laughs> they, they basically uh, reproduce in a cloud. <laughs> they squirt out some eggs and they, uh, they squirt out some sperm and then they have nothing to do with their babies that, that are, you know, microscopic. And, and so the, all of this is projection on the part of us, right? Mm-hmm. And projection on the part of the writers, perhaps. Especially Sonia Green. This is, this is, um, uh, a mom revenge story in a certain sense, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah. It's, it's a female revenge sto- story for the evil men who stole the baby and mistreated them, etc. Yeah. Uh, I, I never thought that. I, I always thought it's, um, uh, Captain Orn is shrewd, so he's Ulysses, but a, 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 a lousy Ulysses who gets, um, trounced by, the Poseidon, the father of um, the Cyclops, mm-hmm. at the beginning of, of his his voyage, and he never went anywhere. So I didn't, I could see the baby mother thing, but uh, my first thought was um, mythological, and it's um, it's Ulysses, uh, the Cyclops, the Cyclops uh, probably telepathically called out to to. Poseidon or, or, or the old one equivalent of Poseidon. They don't even have to be all that closely related. Yeah, the I, I, I see that, but uh, I also think almost everybody, and even though it doesn't say in that, almost everybody projects that it's it's a female. You're the exception. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that's amazing <laughs> that everybody makes it. A, no, but the thing is, is it, <clears throat> because it says Sonia H. Green at the top of the, uh, of the, you know, under the title, the invisible monster, we're bringing that female idea to it, right? I think. Yeah, I, I think it's almost, uh, it's almost a trope too, in the sense that, uh, you know, throughout nature, that's a, that's a thing. If you, uh, a, a bear will leave you alone uh, unless you get close to the bear cubs and then you're in trouble. You yeah, know, but the, like, the, the, yeah. The, 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 whole, the daddy bear gives no shits about his babies, right? That's right. That, well, that's why you assume it's the mom. Because, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, dads don't care. And, uh, but uh, Poseidon did care. Yes. And, and that's the difference between that's human projection. Human um, and animal, yeah. Yeah, it's different. But, but this is what I was saying. It's it's layered. I mean, almost nothing happens. I'm sorry for the people who died, but almost nothing <laughs> happens in the story. It just goes on and on, uh, sort of uh, stylistic uh, preparation and so on. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've got, like you said, it could be based on a, a real-life event. It could have sort of been um, reimagined um, just – with a, a little more detail to make a, a fairly simple horror story. And then you get a, a sort of cosmic dimension over the top. And then you get a sort of moralistic dimension over the top of that. And it's quite possible that um, uh, Lovecraft and Sonia Green had two different readings of um, – it's like um, with uh, Ridley Scott was convinced 
that um, uh, Deckard was a, a replicant and uh, Harrison Ford was convinced he was human. And they were well, both in the, the making. <laughs> <laughs> they were both in the making of the same film. So the fact that there's two authors uh, uh, justifies a sort of feminine maternal revenge um, uh, reading. And uh, a Lovecraft cosmic. The, he doesn't talk about revenge. He says a purpose so revolting to my brain th- that the vision soon passed. Revenge isn't 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 revolting to the brain. Uh, it uh, makes you outraged or indignant, but it's not a, a purpose uh, incredibly revolting. He, 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 if it was a maternal revenge, he could have he wouldn't agree, but he could have understood. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And the 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 so-called revenge. Uh, aside, it's. All the, those other people um, are collateral damage just so the the mother Cyclops could get at um, Captain Orn, that sounds, unless um, the the super Cyclops um, thought just all humanity was guilty. That's what humans do. But otherwise, it's a, too much collateral damage for it to be revenge. Well, well, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, it's more of a... Uh, uh, species-wide revenge. You know these these humans from mm. from the land. They uh, all look alike to me. <laughs> yeah, they do, and they they grabbed up my wonderful little fifty-foot baby and and killed it and stuffed it. And you know, I'm not I'm not going to have any of that. So know? the storm yeah. came, took away. Is, so, yeah, go for it. Uh, I was just going to say, which is what humans do all the time when, like, you know, a wolf or something attacks a villager then all the wolves are going to get killed now you know like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just go out and like just annihilate a species out of anger yeah uh, put a price on their head uh the storm a storm came t- two times in this story right there's a storm came and took away the um the ship well, the museum right the museum that uh Oren put together or I, I don't know if museum's the right word for it but the place where he charges the rubes to see the, the show the yeah the fake monster. And then uh, he goes out looking for it for quite a long time. And then he comes back and he's trying to wrap up his business in the area, which doesn't sound legit to me either. I'm very suspicious of all of this. Um, <laughs> and then... He's uh, Yes, he is. And then um, here's the... here's the uh, if, if it's a mom creature and or dad, whatever... Um, its plan is to show up on the beach and somehow get revenge, right? And its its revenge has to include the idea that these guys are going to respond in a certain way to a call in the sea, uh, which is to throw a line and then everybody's going to grab on. See, that doesn't make any sense that it's <laughs> it's planned all well, this right, out, right? right? So, you got to set aside your. Um, uh, propensity for for disbelief. You know, you got to uh, set that aside and go with the story. And oh, you know, I am uh, going with the story because the, I want to say the, the monster didn't necessarily know that they would respond to a call by throwing a line. Yeah, but uh, you know, the assumption is uh, uh, here she, he, it comes, and uh, you know, I'm going to get these humans. And uh, so that's the first thing. Make the presence yeah. known. Make a sound. And you know, yeah, she, so she was so, out there grieving and screaming, and then they <laughs> threw a, a flotation device at her. 
She's like, what? <laughs> How dare you? This is insult to injury. You killed aspect. my baby and now you're throwing shit at me? <laughs> That's the last straw, the, the last float. Okay, so... Uh, uh, one, one aspect of the story, too, uh, is there's a, a very tiny thread that runs through it. Uh-huh. One uh, you mentioned before, uh, talking about uh, it having an in, inordinate... Uh, uh, indication of intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Then, um, it uh, then the mention at the very beginning uh, about this um, uh, incident uh, has something to do with a an article published by some professor about hypnotic powers. Professor are they, Alton, yes. Are they confined to humanity to recognize yes. humanity? Right. And, I want to read that article. I do. <laughs> And then at the very end, um, you know, there's the spooky little thing uh, about um, uh, when it's all over, uh, the the hypnotized lines of humans that can't um, can't let go of the line are, are dragged to their death under the waves. And then he hears, uh, let's just say, OK, uh, they're trickled upon my ears from some abysmal sunken waste. The faint and sinister echoes of a laugh, you know. Okay, so all right, so there's, there's the there's the intelligence again. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only not only was this horrible beast a, a huge uh, alien, deep sea, one eyed monster, um, but it also had the intelligence and the purpose to come after him for revenge and be satisfied with its results and laugh. You know mm-hmm. who laughs. You know, only humans laugh. So, mm, uh, and hyenas. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're 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 cheap. They'd laugh at anything. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. When do when do hyenas laugh? Do they laugh once they've won or before? They're laughing as soon as they're born, and they're it's it's a sad laugh. In fact, uh, I want to read. I want to read it because <laughs> I want to. I want to read it as. We're supposed to, which is with skepticism, right? It says, look, nobody can explain the uh, what went on at Martin's Beach. And, and in going back to the title, uh, what is the horror? Is it the thing dragging people into the sea that's horrible? Or is it the fact that people were frozen and didn't want to go help those people? Like, if I ran over there and grabbed onto Professor Orrin's legs, would I get magically stuck to his legs as well? Yep, entirely yeah, possible. Like how come? How come nobody goes down there? Well, you know what? Electricity actually explains it a lot better than anything else I can think of. You know, their physically uh, arms are paralyzed, right? Because they can't let go of this electrical line. That actually makes more sense than anything. But if I went down there with a hacksaw and started cutting the hemp in line, wouldn't that have solved the problem? So one way of reading it is that it's not actually uh, there is no hemp in line. That this is actually, I think, this is a really cool idea, is that that's their interpretation of what, like, because of how much it builds up, how there are all these different accounts, right? And then there's sort of a, a, a proposed theory by this Professor Alton was that something hypnotized these people so that they couldn't let go, right? But what if it's not, there was never a line to begin with? What if it was, there's like this tentacle, coming out of the sea, right? And it's physically hooking on to people and to people who are trying to get away from it, right? So obviously that's not what 
what it says in the story. But every, we're supposed to sort of not trust anything. And then if we're just making it more less about what specifically is in the water pulling them, and we just look at the description, it's very important, I think, to, to look at the way the moon plays on the water. Because as I was mentioning, um, uh, it, it's in the moon bog, you know, this moon plays on the water and then basically everybody's turned into frogs. <laughs> um, I hate when that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a problem, right? Um, there's, uh, there's something about how the moon shows up on the water and then they have this line that's hilarious to me, which is the moon was about a foot above the up of the water that's impossible right <laughs> it's just not a i mean in what in what sense can the moon be a foot above the water first of all if i get a coin and hold it out at arm's length and put it up like a quarter and hold oh, put it up to block out the moon um it doesn't mean the moon is uh the size of a quarter right it just means that the moon is very far away and the quarter is very close so if i say the moon is a foot above the water from what angle, right? Some yeah, people, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, from the perspective of the person who is, uh, who is, who is viewing it or who is reporting that, you know, it's a uh, phenomenological as opposed to what's actually exactly, there. Exactly. What it looks, yes. I, I agree. I saw, uh, once the moon a foot above the water <laughs> and it was huge. You got a tape measure and out. I, I, I couldn't believe at first it was the moon. I, I was with somebody. I said, what's that over there? Um, it was, it was at the beach at the Saint Jean Capferra and, um, uh, the moon had just risen. So all the moon was, uh, there, but just above the water. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was even less than a foot and it just looked gigantic to yes, me. Yes, it, it does. Uh, whenever, you know, when the sun or when the moon sets, near the uh, on my way home sometimes the moon will set (coughs) near some towers right and you can see it sort of in between the towers and it looks massive it looks like huge but if you actually put your coin out (laughs) and you you see that it's actually the exact same size i didn't put my coin literally (laughs) that is what it's about right it's about the hypnotism this hypnotism theory that, that we were all sort of struck it also explains why the people um failed to act right they're all hypnotized they're frozen well, that could be the horror uh, exactly that's the horror is not the monster violent, it's violent the thing and, and the bystanders just uh exactly uh, stay there and don't help and just watch and and yeah watch. that is a yep. huge part of the horror absolutely the horror is is seeing and so if we read it that way then the invisible monster is us Right, uh, and then, that's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's an interesting, dance, interesting way of looking at it. And I, I would, I would, I would definitely be a part personally of the of the invisible horror because uh, I, I wouldn't be down there. No, you, know, you don't want to be getting, involved in that. No, sir. It's a, I'll be happy to watch from a distance as, uh, as all you people room. get dragged <laughs> into the sea. You know. Yeah, that's why I like the narrator's perspective in this because um, that's just so chilling to imagine watching that and i feel like we've all seen it before with like you know when humankind is like marching other humans to their death and you mm. just see these lines of people just resign to their fate and mm. no one can do anything about it or you're going to go with them and That's right. i don't know it just feels so real and creepy there's like yes. a line in there where 
there's something like um, they're looking back over their shoulders with like pale faces and, mm-hmm. you know, they can't, they, they're not calling for help. They're not struggling. They're just walking into the ocean and looking back over their shoulders in fear. Yeah. Oh, so scary. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. I've got, I've got a bunch of things like noted. Let's see if I've got that one here. Uh, this is on page 76 in the far right column, but three paragraphs up. Some who were staying at the inn retired in terror to their rooms, while others remained to watch the fast-sinking victims as the line of bobbing heads showed above the mounting waves in the fitful lightning flashes. I recall thinking of those heads and the bulging eyes they must contain, eyes that might well reflect at the all the fright and panic and delirium of a malignant universe. There's the Lovecraft for you right there. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the sorrow, sin, and misery, blasted hopes and unfulfilled desires, fear, loathing, and anguish of the ages since time's beginning, eyes alight with all the soul-racking pain of eternal blazing infernos. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 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 going to record that paragraph and hook it up somehow to my alarm clock. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to speak to me at the beginning of every day. It's so so perfect. It's a a perfect description of this universe. Wake up screaming. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And as I gazed out beyond the heads, my fancy conjured up still another eye. A single eye, equally alight, yet with a purpose so revolting to my brain that the vision soon passed. Held in the clutches of an unknown vice, the line of da- of the damned dragged on. The line of the damned, that'd be a great um, uh, title for this story as well. The line of the damned dragged on, their silent screams, unuttered prayers, unknown, uh, sorry, known only to the demons of the black waves and the night wind. So, um, he does actually say, uh, well, they say, she says, this is, I'm going to continue reading here. There now burst from the infuriate sky such a mad cataclysm of satanic sound that satanic doesn't sit well with Lovecraft. Uh, so you've got a cluster of religious stuff there, Mm -hmm. infernos, Uh, mm -hmm. damned, and then satanic. Mm-hmm. I did not like that. It felt weird. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 off. Uh, it's someone so- else's story. <laughs> it is. Sounds that even the former crash seemed dwarfed. Amidst a blinding glare of descending fire, the voice of heaven resounded with the blasphemies of hell. Ventriloquism. And the mingled <laughs> agony of all the lost reverberated in one apocalyptic planet-rending peal of a cyclopean din. There's the Cyclopean. So it's a giant, right? And in the it was the end of the storm. For with uncanny suddenness, the rain ceased and the moon once more cast her pallid. It's a her now. Look at that. Her pallid beams on the strangely quieted sea. Um, there was no line of bobbing heads now. Waters were calm and deserted and broken only by the fading ripples of what seemed to be a whirlpool far out of the path of the moonlight, whence the strange cry had first come. But as I looked along the treacherous lane of silvery sheen with fancy fevered and senses overwrought, there trickled upon my ears from some abysmal sunken waste the faint and sinister echoes of a laugh. So I think that's the narrator laughing. 
rather than something at the bottom of the sea <laughs> going, oh, oh, oh I got gotcha. you. Wow. Nice. I like that interpretation oh, wow. way better. I didn't like the laugh either. I thought that felt a bit the like Scooby-Doo villain. The hyena is laughing because it's sad, right? It's but like, if it's the narrator, like if everyone's yeah. hypnotized and they're out of their minds and they're not helping their fellow human beings and even laughing, like that's even creepier. Yeah, it's gallows humor, right? It's he's he's It's not that he's saying... But he doesn't recognize that, or, or she doesn't recognize that he or she, whoever the narrator is, does not recognize that the laugh is coming from either the narrator himself or from the group. I like that interpretation. So yeah, it makes it slightly better to think of it that way. And uh, that's, it's like, uh, not only does it have four legs for some reason for walking, on land for some reason and one big eye but it also has a laugh come on well yeah by the way with the legs thing that reminded me when i was reading this i was trying to look it up to see if um uh anglerfish had been discovered yet because mm-hmm. i couldn't stop thinking about anglerfish like with Definitely. the feet crawling along the bottom of the deep sea and the big glowing eye like with the moon and stuff and the hypnotizing kind of mm-hmm. thing effect but i don't think there's any way like they discovered anglerfish then, but I don't think they knew that they were well had glowing yeah. eyes in the deep sea and stuff. So there is so a it has sto- a, 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 its feet or, or on on the chest. It's got four legs and then uh, feet on the chest. Yeah, little four legs. legs. Yeah, like a little Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes, yeah, so four legs must be on the shoulders, and the six-toed feet are on the chest. So. It's not really adapted for it's, it to crawl around. It's not super clear what <laughs> what 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 it's all for. That's why that's what it's why throwing into. But that's also the baby, right? Which I I think it's almost like I I want to see this as two things. First, there was this guy who put together a bunch of stuff and then said, "Look under this glass case, that's the giant monster I fought for forty days." Uh huh. Sure you did, bub, right? Um, he's got all these scientific men. Uh, okay. Uh, what makes them scientific? Well, they're scientific. They, they know about the fishy tribes. <laughs> like, our narrator isn't the greatest, uh, at, it seems kind of like taken in. And, and there is also another dynamic here. Apparently this was a real place that they went to. And I, I actually have the bit I want to read about that, but there, I drew, I was drawing it out. Um, in the top right hand corner of my copy. And it says, you know, on the, on the, Martin's Beach has a bunch of hills with how, uh, cabins, I guess. And then there's this resort sort of place and it's got a veranda and there it's sunset, right? So it's, it's a vacation spot, but you've got this dynamic. There's the rich people above and the poorer people, uh, below now the thing is is i personally would prefer a cabin so maybe that's not the poor people maybe i'm just assuming it wrong but there is this dynamic of those above and those below right uh in fact i'll just read that paragraph from the first uh page it was in the twilight when gray seabirds hovered low near the shore and a rising moon began to make a glittering path across the water so that path is very important for a lot of lovecraft stories for every impression counts. On this beach were several strollers and a few late bathers. 
stragglers from the distant cottage colony that rose modestly, notice the word modestly, on a green hill to the north, or from the adjacent cliff-perched inn whose imposing towers proclaimed its allegiance to wealth and grandeur. You've got the poor people and the rich people, right? Ah, I just figured out the horror at Martin's Beach. It's the hotel that like covers it up and it's letting the mm. letting people come back to the beach yeah, and, and just, that's, like get eaten by the monster. That's exactly the same dynamic you see in Jaws, right? So there's right. there's this uh, mayor who wants to keep the festival going and keep the economy good, and it, it, it's, it's the weird. Corporate is the horror, mm-hmm. and and that in that movie, uh, uh, the Beast. It's it's so strange because Peter Benchley seems just like, aha, I got the formula now. And he just keeps retelling the same story. There's exactly the same dynamic. There's an island. It used to be a fishing place. But the guy's doing a development and he's the harbor master and he owns the island. And right, he's going to help one of the fishermen go out and kill the beast. Um, And he does kill the beast, but that's the baby. (laughs) <laughs> and then the mom comes in for revenge, right? So it's it's got that uh, uh, community uh, versus the individual. But here we've got the individual as the narrator, right? And we've got this other individual, Captain Orn. We've got Alton, who's maybe one of these scientific men who's trying to explain what the fuck happened. And you've got the rich people and the poor people and everybody's involved. So it's humanity that is getting like uh, I didn't picture it was only the people from the the fancy uh, inn that were going there. I think it was everybody, the cottagers as well, who were going and grabbing that line. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a story, a uh, really terrific story by uh, Philip K. Dick called "Fair Game." Y'all read the story and know about it? No. I think I have, but can you remind me of sure. the? Sure, I did premise? a show on it in 2011. I'm just going to see if I can bring it up here. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Professor Anthony Douglas lowered gratefully into his red leather easy chair and sighed, a long sigh accompanied by a labored removal of his shoes and numerous grunts as he kicked them into the corner. He folded his hands across his ample middle and lay back, eyes closed. Tired? Laura Douglas asked. <laughs> turning from the kitchen stove for a moment, her dark eyes sympathetic. You can tell this is a completely different kind of writing, right, Philip K. Dick? <laughs> He's got this Douglas and ample and sighing and grunting. <laughs> I, love, I love Philip K. Dick's writing. It's so different. But um, what what this is about, this is about a um, nuclear scientist who who's working in Colorado, um, and he thinks he's really important and that he's going to get this... Uh, this uh, new government contract to do some nuclear weapons testing or something. And uh, he's worried about his rival at the university who might, who's younger and who doesn't know as much, but who's very aggressive. Um, and while he's thinking about this, he's driving to work. And then he sees uh, some gold on the side of the road, like gold bars. And he like stops the car and jumps out and they're not there. And he's like, Oh, what the hell? I'm going crazy. And then he drives on some more and then something else weird happens. And he's just like, this is the weirdest thing. Um, and then when he gets to the university, he said, you know, I had the weirdest experience happen to me. And they're like, uh huh. <laughs> and then he drives home or something. And then, um, uh, when he gets home, he, he's sitting in his easy chair again 
and he sees this giant eye outside the window, like the size of the entire sky. And he sees it looking at him and he's like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) And then he goes back to the university the next day and he's, or maybe it's that even that night he goes to an anthropologist. zoologist or something he says is there any uh giant uh, sky monsters the guy <laughs> over colorado <laughs> and the guy's like hmm this seems strange you should see the other uh uh university professor the psychologist right um well it it comes again that uh he, he stops on the side of the road and there's a gas station um and he needs to get some coffee and uh, he goes in and gets some coffee and and then the very next thing we see at the end of the story is uh, basically, I'll just read the last paragraph here. Uh, or the last few paragraphs. This is on uh, the sickmyduck.nayrod.ru website. Um, shapes. Two enormous shapes squatting down. Two incredibly huge figures bending over. One was drawing in the net. The other watched, holding something in its hand, a landscape. Dim forms too vast for Douglas to comprehend. At last, a thought came. What a struggle! It was worth it, the other creature thought. Their thoughts roared through him, powerful thoughts for from immense minds. I was right, the biggest yet. What a catch! Must weigh all of twenty-four raggets. At last! Suddenly Douglas's composure left him. A chill of horror flashed through his mind. What were they talking about? What did they mean? But then he was dumped from the net. He was falling. Something was coming up at him. A flat, shiny surface. What was it? Oddly, it looked almost like a frying pan. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the, uh, sh- the shiny gold on the side of the road, uh, it was a lure, right? Oh my goodness. I have not read this story. It's, <laughs> it's amazing, right? Um, and the thing is, is, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. It's not science fiction. I mean, there are no gods in the sky. We've sent rockets up there, right? But that's, well, he's got them sort of as aliens, but, it, or they're from another dimension or whatever. But the thing is, is what's funny is he sets it up really nicely by saying ample, right? He's got an ample middle. He keep, they keep, every once in a while, it talks about how he's fat. <laughs> 24 raggets. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's almost like this is the sea's revenge for fishing. Uh, you know, all these uh, Captain Warren is a fisherman. It isn't specifically, um, it isn't specifically uh, about this one animal that he caught and put on display. It's not a revenge story uh, for a mom, but rather it's a the sea. Uh, doing the same thing to us as what we did to them. In a certain mm-hmm. sense, there's like a, um, there's a, I, I don't know, you guys look at your tuna cans, but sometimes they say, um, line caught versus, you know, net caught. Nets are bad because they get, uh, one of those things, dolphins, right? But line caught, else, yeah. pole caught, line and pole caught tuna. Well, these lines are not like, it's not one hook on the end. It's like thousands of hooks, right? Uh, so there's this giant line of hooks all the way down into the sea and they're all baited. And then what happens is the tunas see that and they get hooked on and then they just pull this whole line in and there's, you know, 
lots of tunas, not just one tuna on the end of one line. It's not like a single guy fishing. It's industrialized fishing. And it's almost like that that's what's going on. But there's a, still another reading, which I think is even cooler, is just thinking about like the moon in relation to its proximity to the water and the line, uh, uh, you know, the, the shine it makes on the water and the size and the fact that it's in the narrator, he thinks there's, there's another eye there for a second. His, he fancies that, right? It's the pull of the moon, the, the gravitational pull of the moon. You can't fight that no matter how many people you, you, uh, you go against, right? And isn't there a story, Wayne, is it the other gods where a man is flown it? I think that's maybe in another commonplace story too. A man is thrown off the earth into the sky, like in almost reverse gravity. Oh, wow. I don't know. That might be no, the other not gods. Not ringing a bell. Hmm. It's, it, it's really, it, there's a lot going on in here. It's not just, uh, uh, sort of as crappy as it looks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. You, you I think of, the, uh, of Shakespeare, though. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, uh, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. So it's not even on the analogy of killing the all the wolves because the wolf attacked um, one of us. It's uh, you're just nothing. You're just flies, and I'll I'll squash you a little. Mm. It's, the no, line is is flypaper. Yeah, yeah, it is flypaper, right? And and the the fact that you know everybody's pulling against it. Um, what? Why are they pulling? What? Why did they go down there in the first place? Because they thought someone needed rescuing, right? And it, that in, instinct to work together as a group to help is used against them. Ew. And then those who are unwilling to participate, it's it, it it's kind of ins, insidious, right? What yeah. this story well, is doing. Either that or you could also look at it the other way. It's uh, human, uh, human instinct and propensity to rubberneck, you know? Ooh, there's an accident. Oh, yes, Ooh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's got that in there, too. Check it out. Oh, the flight paper is um, you can buy um, cheap houses near the sea line while the rich people buy the big things on the cliff. Mm-hmm. And then when there's a natural disaster, it's the poor people who bought the uh, cheap, close-to-the-water places that are uh, inundated. We know at least some of the people uh, came from the rich area because Captain. Because they go back to the inn, they're not worried. Yeah, that's right. And our narrator, I think, is up there too, right? He's up there Mm -hmm. at the at the party, the dance party that's happening, and um, and the fact that he's setting it down here, right? Or she is setting it down as a as a story. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, Now, uh, this is pretty cool. There's a guy who wrote a book that I have, I have not read yet, but I've been reading his tweets. Um, and that's what made me buy his book. Uh, his name's Bobby Deary. I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce his name. D E R I E, I think. Um, and he, uh, is writing a lot about, yeah, his book is weird Taylor's essays on Robert E. Howard and others. And he also wrote a book called sex and the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and he's, explicitly uh, using a lot of letters to back up theses. And I've got this blog post from March 16th, 2019. I want to read this to you. While visiting Magnolia, 
that beautiful exclusive summer resort on north side north shore of massachusetts we often walked up to gloucester which was a distance of about four miles on our way we passed a beautiful esplanade one evening while walking along the esplanade the full moon reflecting its light in the water a peculiar and unusual noise heard at a distance as of a loud snorting and grunting the shimmering light formed, forming a moon path on the water. The round tops of the submerged piles in the water exposed a rope connecting them like a huge spider's guy line. Gave the vivid imagination full play for an interesting weird tale. Oh, Howard, I exclaimed. Here you have a setting for a real strange and mysterious story, said he. Go ahead and write it. Oh, sorry. Uh, mysterious story, said he. Go ahead and write it. Oh, no, I couldn't do it justice, I answered. Try it. Tell me what the scene pictures to your imagination. And as we walked along, we neared the edge of the water. Here I describe my interpretation of the scene and the noises. His encouragement was so enthusiastic and sincere that when we parted for the night, I sat up and wrote the general outline, which he later revised and edited. He continued... His continued enthusiasm the next day was so genuine and sincere that in appreciation I surprised and shocked him right then and there by kissing him. He was so flustered that he blushed, then he turned pale. When I chafed him about it, he said he had not been kissed since he was very a very small child and that he was never kissed by any woman, not even by his mother or aunts, since he grew to, to manhood, and that he would probably never be kissed again. And then in parentheses, but I fooled him. Sonia H. Davis, The Private Life of H.P. Lovecraft. I guess that's <laughs> her cool. remarried name, yeah. Um, so she, she had a bunch of different names, right? She's born Sonia Haft, or maybe Haft is her middle name. Haft Shafirkin. Yeah, and born in Ukraine and moved to the United States. Married some dude named Samuel Green. Uh, had a daughter named Carol Weld. And a grown-up daughter, uh, I guess middle-aged lady, uh, finds this guy's never been kissed. He improves her story a little bit, and uh, they get married and happily ever after, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool that it's all right there in the, the setup, right? Yep. And, uh, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a terrible story. It's just... Um, it's not what we uh, think of when we think of Lovecraft, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's like what I said at the beginning. I, um, it's, it's a little softer than 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 Lovecraft usually Definitely is. Like softer. like that that one paragraph that was 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 f full of uh, hellfire. Uh, Fifteen adjectives uh, about how horrible everything is. Um, that seems to be, you know, that's the that's the love that one of the things he contributed for sure. The rest of it uh, doesn't seem to take that statement seriously. Mm, you know, she mm. she didn't. I don't think she had that worldview exactly. Mm. But, uh, also but, but I, I agree. It's a good story. It's lacking that indifference as well. Like the monster in this is, you know, anguished and angry. And mm -hmm. there, there's definitely some bellows, right? Yeah, and even the scream of anguish when mm. she, it, he finds the infant, and it seems very, very humanish kind of monster. I think I think that that's the the most easy reading is that it is it is a revenge tale. Um, I think that it's hard to read against that, but the, 
why is it the moon, right? It's it's that single eye. And uh, my uh, Twitter friend, it's not my regular friend because we don't I haven't done a podcast yet, but my Twitter friend uh, uh, Jason Thompson, who does those beautiful um, Lovecraft adaptations and did that amazing Dreamland poster. Um, he, uh, he's done a couple of illustrations. One is of the smack, um, and, uh, I guess the baby. And then he's got another one that is, I, I put that in the album art for the, for the audiobook, if you saw that. And, uh, and then the other one is, is like a, a couple on the beach, um, you know, he's applying, uh, I don't know, sunscreen to her back and she's reading a book. And then in the distance, there's a, like a, a one-eyed fish monster coming out of the sea <laughs> eating <Cool>. people, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is he also put the moon very low in the sky right next yeah. to the, the fish monster. And the circle of that eye is the exact same size, right? There's something, some sort of massive connection between the eye, like, it's like looking up at the moon, we don't see it normally as an eye, but it's a big round thing in the sky that you can see, right? And anyone on Earth who's on the same side of the Earth as you, they can see it too, right? It's it's sort of a, it is an eye in a certain sense, even though it's the, it's not actually looking at us. If you yeah, if you're like my sister, a little more paranoid than I am, you you might see it as something of a threat. Yeah, well, it's a it, it it's a kind of kind of unspoken, but uh, that train of thought reminds me of the you know the statement: if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss is going to stare back at you, mm-hmm. that that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if the universe is um, all those horrible uncaring things uh maybe that's that's the eye of the of the abyss looking back at you you know can you imagine human history without like human history's relationship science and our understanding of the universe to the rest of the universe without the moon how different would it be if we if the earth had exactly the same setup but without the moon well we would think well Tides would be different, right? And stuff like that. But that's not the important. To me, I think the important part about that is that when you look at any of the other planets through a telescope, just a regular human sized telescope rather than the kind that they put in space and the kind they have on top of mountains, right? Just a regular telescope. They don't look like anything that's recognizable. But when you look at the moon, you can see Especially if you've got a regular, you know, telescope or binoculars, you can see mountains, right? It is another place. It is another yep. world. And that is both uh, comforting in a certain sense, but it's also horrifying, right? And that's the thing. I just keep thinking about how important it is for Lovecraft to be interested in, in the universe as a, as a reality in the way that none of those sunbathers or sea bathers are thinking about right they're thinking about profits they're thinking about dancing they're thinking about getting a cottage or getting a new car or whatever it is they're not thinking about the fact that they're a, a speck in a sea of black infinity right and that the fact that the moon's always there and it's plays such an important role in in this in the human mind and in this story i think is is it's hard to understate mm-hmm what you're going to say something there, Terrence? 
Oh, no, I was just thinking, um, well, yeah, I agree with you that the, the moon is part of the cosmic layer of the text or whatever. But I was thinking if you that's the moon sort of a character. If it you is. want the Oedipal triangle, the moon is, is the mother, but it's not the, the, the big um, revenge maker. The moon is shown as opening a path, opening the way, mm-hmm. um, opening a lane. And so um, it's sort of like um, the mother calling back down to the depths. There they are. You can come and get them mm. now. Mm. Or opening the people the, to uh, uh, an influence from another reality that opens the, the path both ways. Mm-hmm. A bridge of moonbeams is how it's put, I think, in, <laughs> was that the white ship, right? Uh, oh, yes. What's the name of that? What's the name of the narrator? Uh, Alt, is it Alton? What's the name of the narrator? Uh, the, my name is, geez, I almost have it, almost know these stories well enough to, <laughs> damn, white ship. Lovecraft. Uh, Professor my, Alton, is that who you're? No, no, the name of the, <clears throat> the white ship Lovecraft text. I'm looking at pictures. Ah. Uh, here it is. I am, uh, Elton. I am Basil Elton, keeper of the North Point Light. My father. Elton's in this story. El, it's Elton though here. It's slightly different, right? I am Basil Elton, keeper of the North Point Light that my father and my grandfather kept before me. Far from the shores stands the gray lighthouse above sunken slimy rocks that are seen when the tide is low but unseen when the tide is high. Past the beacon and for a century have swept the majestic barks of the seven seas. In the days of my grandfather there were many. In the days of my father not so many. And now there are so few that I sometimes feel strangely alone as though I were the last man on the planet. And uh, that's... Uh, he watch. I'm pretty sure this is the one where he, he walks across on a bridge of moonbeams. Uh, mm. Bridge... Yep, there it is. Very brightly did the moon shine on that on the night I answered the call, and I walked out over the waters to the white ship on a bridge of moonbeams. The man who beckoned now spoke a welcome to me in a soft language I seemed to know well, and then hours were filled with soft songs of the oarsmen as we glided away into the mysterious south. Golden was the with the glow of that full mellow moon. It's it's definitely a theme that comes up and up and up. I mean, it's right in that opening with the the tide as well, right? Mm-hmm. The the sea like, and the moon. Sorry, go for it. Oh, I was going to say I like this um, reading of it where it's like you can imagine um, Sonia writing in all that mom infant revenge story stuff, and then like Terence says Lovecraft adding this like more indifferent moon as the mm-hmm. way in the opening to the. Mm-hmm. To the depths, like that's kind of like a nice metaphor for that, probably their relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, uh, was it was it Terence who said uh, something like um, something to the effect of uh, who who you can tell who wrote what? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that was not necessarily. You can tell, but you can. Uh, there could be two different readings, and, and because there are sort of layers, there's mm-hmm. a. The, the anecdote, there's a sort of a cynical thing that maybe it was a fake, and then mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. Uh, the story, and then there's a horror um, cosmic aspect. That, that, uh, there's sort of clusters of adjectives that come together, and then at the end it's, a, it's satanic and demonic, and uh, I don't know who put um, the sort of more religious um, 
cosmology at the end. Those are so easy. I think, I, I, I think it's like, it, it could be the, so we also have to remember that there's a narrator, right? So most, most, uh, regular folks walking around the earth in the 1920s aren't going to be using Lovecraft's sort of cosmo, cosmology. So if the narrator is just a regular dude rather than, uh, professor, like, for example, professor Alton, right? And his article are hypnotic powers. I, I assume that professor Alton works at Miskatonic or something. Yes, right? of course. So he would be. He's like many of the other professors who, uh, you know, get involved in these weird uh, letters received and such like that. In fact, um, I, I should point out that this is all, this is all recapitulated in that, in that, uh, Peter Benchley book slash movie, right? Um, there's a professor, they, the fisherman sends, uh, evidence of this weird thing, which turns out to be a tentacle hook. Uh, to the zoo- zoologist, zoologist sends it to the professor of uh, marine biology. The marine biology says, "I'm coming there right away." <laughs> right, and they have these conferences where they say, "Well, let's sit around and talk about what we're going to do." And then, meanwhile, out in the water, right? Uh, there's something. There's something very uh, cool that it's it, it's it is inspiring. Of it, it, this is not the same. Like there's there are other stories with 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 sea monsters right before this there's um uh a william hope hodgson story called the tropical horror which is basically uh architeuthis sort of giant squid attacking a ship story and it's a great story but um that is just like a traditional sea monster story whereas this has the weird element which is like, what the hell is that moon doing there? And why, why do the people act that way? The fact that they don't, can't let go is, I think, what makes this story so much more interesting than mm-hmm. it's just like a sea tentacle coming out of the water and grabbing people, right? Yeah. And the meta element, um, you didn't like the title, but there's the title, and, and then I have never heard an even approximately adequate account of the horror at Martin's Beach. Mm-hmm. Nobody has given an explanation of, of our story. That's a, a sort of self-reference mm-hmm. aspect that, that seems more something that Lovecraft would do. Yeah, I don't know who came up with that invisible monster title, but I, I'm all in favor of it having multiple titles so I can... I but know, it's the first first line. It's like you hear um, somebody must have been telling lies about Joseph K, and you know right. straight away it's Kafka. So right. I've never heard an even approximately adequate explanation of the horror. We don't even know what it is, right. um, and it seems to be a self-reference. So you you almost straight away think of Lovecraft. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That kind, of, that kind of leaves the whole thing. It gives you license to have uh, an interpretation, you know, your own interpretation about it. Uh, as you said, Jesse, that, you know, the the average uh, bear is not going to have a Lovecraftian worldview. And think <laughs> of it. So, I, I will I will say that I said that now, but <laughs> well, I, I paraphrase. Yes. Um, but uh, but once they encounter it, you know, they'll they'll come up with uh with their own interpretation of it, and that's why there are the most amazing discrepancies and mm-hmm. uh, the the large number of witnesses whose uh, uh, of whom uh, no two accounts agree. You know, because they're 
coming up with a with a reality like that or a um, situation like that, they uh, have a hard time parsing it, have a hard time interpreting it, and since they don't have a, the common bond of a Lovecraftian worldview, you know, they're all going to interpret it their own way. So they're mm-hmm. going to have, you know, diff- differing reports. Yeah, as opposed to, like, uh, that that's the interesting thing, right, is that in this story, it is a widely witnessed phenomenon, right? A lot of people saw it. Whereas in almost every other story, we've got a narrator who was alone that night, right? Uh, was was uh, a sole surviving witness, to it. Right. And and the difference is is tremendous because we always assume that those guys are unreliable narrators. Here everybody's unreliable and yet yeah. this is basically what one guy saw and and he's he's basing it on what everybody else saw too. So what the hell did they see? It's it, uh, um you know, and uh, lots of stuff happens under the sun for sure, but apparently, uh, even weirder stuff happens under the moon. And it's it's like the thing that Zizek um, uh, says that after a trauma, all your sort of uh, uh, reference points are um, scrambled. Mm. So if ever you get somebody a rape victim or a victim of of, of some uh, attack. And they're able to go and file a complaint and say exactly what happened mm-hmm. without contradicting themselves. That's suspicious. Mm-hmm. Normally, if you something traumatic has happened to you, you you have trouble even um, conceiving and articulating mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's nice. Um, I don't know that Sonia Green had something terrible happen to her, but she's a human <laughs> being, so of course she did. And Lovecraft definitely had lots of terrible no, things. He was the him. terrible thing that happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, I think it's probably I, I, she. She wanted to. She wanted to recon. Well, and, he wanted to reconcile sort of for a while, but no. I. I think. I think. And uh, vice versa. Yes, it's. I mean, the, the it wasn't really a problem of reconciliation. It was a problem of habituation, right? He just didn't. He needed to be back where he needed to be home, where he felt comfortable. I mean, it's kind of. It's kind of sick, right? But I feel kind of the same way. Like, if you said, Jesse, we're going to pay you a lot of money. We're going to ship you to Virginia. I'm like, I don't know anything about Virginia, and I, I like living where I want to live. No, Jesse, this is going to be better for you. You're going to make a lot more money, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but uh, I have so many reasons I don't want to move there. <laughs> well, in, in, Howard, in Howard's case, he didn't go to Virginia. He was That's the period of his life where she was traveling to make dough. And he was stuck in Red Hook, uh, Brooklyn. Right. Well, no, but he could have moved with her, right? But he, he he was like, no, I I just getting settled in here, um, and there's uh, there's I got all my friends in my club, my podcasting club or whatever it is, <laughs> <laughs> the Calum Club is that what it's called? I think it was the Calum mm-hmm. Club, um, where it's just a bunch of dudes talking, right? So basically, unrecorded podcasts. Um, d- definitely, I, I think. This is this is the biggest fruit of their union, right? Uh, I think there is another story uh, that they did, maybe I'm wrong about that. They collaborated on, but this is the main one. It's not it's not terrible at all. It's just it it's not it doesn't feel like super Lovecraftian. Although yeah. I I swear I I have enough stories now to make a anthology of just moon stories, like stories about 
the weird power of the weirdness in the moon because it ooh, comes up ooh. over over and over and over again. There's so many great stories that just have the moon doing a, a ton of heavy lifting <laughs> or pulling. I mean, seriously, uh, I I thought it was the gravitation of the moon pulling them, right? It's like, try, tr- imagine that line goes all the way out to the moon, right? Now try stopping it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was only two feet above the horizon, so it's possible. That's right. And and the thing is, is you know, we can get there. It's just incredibly hard. But uh, if you attached a line to the Earth, uh, it would be like gravity. And we do have that line, right? That line is gravity. And apparently they just discovered gravi- gravitons or whatever. They've been looking for them for a long time, and they discovered them recently. Definitely real thing, which is good. Keeps us grounded. <laughs> I mean, dude, I don't know. That's I, heavy, man. Dude, I cannot understand. Like, can you imagine just – if you look at the moon, it's round. It's got mountains on it, right? It is. It has phases, just like our Earth has phases where, you know, some of it's in sunlight and some of it's not, Right. Without that, what would you even look at? Why would you even consider building a telescope, right? I guess you'd build a microscope and accidentally point it at the sky, right? <laughs> it, it, it's so important, I think, for it, it looms, it looms large, <laughs> <laughs> especially when it's near the horizon and when yeah, you get a good a, look at it, right? It's that lunar large looming factor. It thing. is. It's, it, it's, I mean, we hide, we hide from it in our cities, in our houses. It's usually above us, so we don't see it, right? It's, it could be in the sky right now, and I don't know, because my window has, you know, just a small fraction of what the sky is. And if, if I had a tiny window and it was, it was in that tiny window, I would think it was looking at me, right? At least for a moment. There's something going on there. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Well, but I, yeah, I was saying to Marissa that I think it, it's not like, um, you know, it's on or off because I think different people have different levels of, of it. Cause like yeah. I'm, my, I don't think I've ever, you know, nobody's ever said, Jesse, you have dyslexia. Um, but, uh, when I'm reading, it's hard for me to, uh, pre-read in the way that I can see you pre-reading when you're, uh, narrating and, you know, my mom and a lot of other people. Um, but more importantly, um, like it just happened the other day. I was reading a word and it's like, that's not the word that it is, right? I go back and look and it was, <laughs> it, the word was nicely. And uh, I read it as incestuous <laughs> <laughs> because I N C. That's, yeah, that's a little right? too much information nice. there. Yeah, no, but Lucky it, it, they're not Rabkin that different. Here. Uh, yeah, Rabkin would would uh, he he is basically uh, a Freudian. <laughs> yeah, he's have fun. I, I've I've had those type of experiences too, where uh, especially like when my. Um, reading glasses prescription is running out mm-hmm. and I'll be, I'll be reading closed captioning on TV and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's entertaining to, um, 
to, to try and communicate to someone else what you thought that said. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, crazy stuff. But um, but it's interesting yeah. because it, it it's actually um, reading as projection of expectations and then uh, checking that against, right? So you you – you, I tell you, this is a novel, and you start reading it, and then you realize, oh, it's not a novel. He lied to me, right? Um, but you're reading it as a novel. That's projection onto it as an object, right? Yeah. And then so that's you're in- interpreting it as you go along. That's right. And and when you look up at a cloud and you and I say, look at the dragon, uh, you're much more likely to see a dragon than uh, whatever you were going to see because of right. that priming that happens and. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> the switching. This is also great to do when you're hanging out with people who are on acid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. As, no as doubt. we all, as we all still do after all. These <laughs> oh well, I hang out with Marissa. That's my. Uh, close. Wow! <laughs> close look at that dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I, ah, look at the dragon. <laughs> yeah. I was up on a roof uh, yesterday in a game, uh, playing PUBG, and uh, <laughs> there it was on this map called Vikendi, which is some sort of, I don't know, Christmas themed almost map. It's like snowy and it's like a snow resort sort of European holiday place. And, and, um, the guys on my squad were, um, (laughs) you know, hunting for enemies. And And I was looking at the roof, uh, the way the roofs all met together and I was like, this is terrible <laughs> because the gutters are going to be running into each other. And this one doesn't have any gutters. So the water and the, it's going to go down the you wall. Were checking the <laughs> I was, I was looking at the architecture, right? And then I, I stopped, uh, well, they're in the middle of a, uh, a gunfight <laughs> to look at a, um, on top of the roof, there was a weather vane with a dragon. And I said, Oh, that's pretty. <laughs> Cause it's quite, it's quite a scenic game. Like, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, people talk about how important, uh, you know, the graphics are way better on this other game. It's like, yeah, but the gameplay sucks, right? So it's not all about graphics, but, um, it, sometimes you have to stop and appreciate, you know, some guy or probably, it's probably a guy, um, had to sit in his, you know, studio making this weather vane for the top of this building. And, uh, it's quite pretty. It's a little dragon, right? Yeah, you're lucky you didn't get your ass shot off. Yeah, well, I was I was pretty well hidden, but um, yeah, I did eventually get my ass shot off though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. So pre-chat finished. Okay. Yeah, we should get into yeah. it because I can't stick around today. Jump out of about... an airplane. Yeah, I got to jump out of a plane. Okay. Just over an hour. Okay. Can hang All right. Let's get started then. Uh, Terrence, how's your connection now? I think it's good now. Good, good. Okay. Uh, did we get everybody? I want to make sure I didn't forget anybody. That's embarrassing if I forgot somebody. I'm uh, looking and we did get everybody, yes. And uh, I didn't say hi to Terrence yet. Hi, Terrence. <laughs> Hello, Wayne. How are you? Have you guys been on a show before together? Not sure, have we? I think so. Okay. We're going to say yes. Okay. Yeah, probably. Probably. Well, you've heard it's so many cool. podcasts, you probably would have, you know, recognized, well, it's recognized a, his voice. A quantum world. It's a quantum. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could go back and check, but let's not. 
Oh, no, that would crystallize it in yeah, that's the right. waveform in one direction. In that would be decoherence. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So I think I'm pretty much ready here. Uh, so how about this? Jesse, Marissa, Wayne, Terrence. I think Wayne's probably still been on more than Terrence. <laughs> but, uh, here we go. You ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Make sure my recorders are going. <clears throat> one. And where's the other one? Yep. They're both going. Here we go.